And so we're going to have our Bible reading, Rosemary. Thank you. The Bible reading is taken from Mark 16, beginning at verse 1. It can be found on page 58 in the New Testament section of the Church Bible. In this reading, we hear of Mark's account of the resurrection of Jesus. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. They had been saying to one another, who will roll the stone away for us from the entrance to the tomb? When they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, do not be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has been raised. He is not here. Look, there is the place they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. So they went out and fled from the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Rosemary, and good morning, everyone. Just let me pray before I begin. Father, help us not to fear the turbulent and hostile world around us, but trust you wholeheartedly as we step out with confidence into the future, knowing that you hold it in your hands for the benefit of ourselves, our loved ones, and our church family here in St. Juan. Amen. Well, we come today to the sixth and final session of our studies in the Gospel of Mark under the title today of Inviting Trust. It's a short passage um, dealing in a brief and very matter-of-fact way with the resurrection. And while the passage is short, the subject matter is of fundamental importance. For Christianity itself stands or falls upon the truth of the resurrection of the Saviour, and with it, the salvation of the world. More important even than climate change, the cost of living crisis, nuclear war, or the ability to knock any wandering asteroids off their potential collision course with Earth. The resurrection of Jesus lies at the heart of the only sure way to provide salvation to humanity. And as we demonstrate our belief in the truth of the resurrection through faith in the risen Lord, he invites us to trust him sufficiently to enable us to live his way in a world that is becoming increasingly hostile to Christians. So we arrive 
at the culmination of the major theme of our studies in Mark during recent weeks, living the way of Jesus in the world. And it might help if I recap on the previous five sessions that we've had. The first one, announcing revolution. Mark chapter 1 begins with John the Baptist crying out in the wilderness, repent and prepare the way of the Lord, for the kingdom of God is near. A kingdom that the people of Israel thought would free them from the oppression of their Roman occupiers and usher in another golden age of independence and prosperity for them. How little did they understand the true nature of God's kingdom on earth? The second session, demonstrating authority. When Jesus calms the storm, the disciples were amazed that even the wind and the waves obeyed him. Thirdly, revealing identity. Who do you say I am? That question rings down the ages to us. Who do you say I am? And Jesus reminded his disciples that following him is not easy in the adulterous and sinful generation that he called it of that time. And as we look around today, little has changed. As Christians, we live in a hostile world. Fourth, Jesus challenging our allegiance to the world and its many temptations. In that case, wealth in the case of the rich young ruler. Fifthly, transforming power. Brian showed us last week how Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane with such an intensity that he actually sweated blood, modelling the transformative power of earnest prayer. And so, to our final session today, the resurrection. Jesus had been crucified on the Friday and his dead body borne by family and friends and laid in the tomb which Joseph of Arimathea had prepared for his own burial. The lifeless body of Jesus had been wrapped in linen and strewn with dry powdered spices that Joseph and Nicodemus had brought. All this had been done with some haste before the Jewish Sabbath officially began at nightfall. So there had been no time to anoint the body with the liquid spices usual in those days. And this the women now wanted to attend to. They'd purchased the spices in the market after sunset on Saturday when the Sabbath officially ended. But because it was night, they didn't go to the tomb. And so, very early, we are told, on the Sunday, they make their way to the tomb to fulfill this last loving service to their Lord. In verse 2, we see that they set out while it's still dark, keen not only 
because of their love of Jesus. They wanted to fulfill that service quickly, but also, of course, because in a warm climate, dead bodies start to decompose quickly, which is why the dead are buried on the same day they die in the Middle East. In their eagerness to honour Jesus' dead body, they forgot to consider how they were going to roll the stone away and ask themselves the question in verse 3. Remember, here, we're only dealing with the women. Only women were in this group. Who will roll the stone away for us? You see, the tomb was a man-made cave cut out of the rock with a heavy, round stone, like a millstone, lying in a groove in front of the tomb. The groove would rise slightly to one side, so the stone could be rolled up and a chock or a wedge of some kind placed at the bottom of it to keep the tomb open. When the tomb was to be closed, the chock would be removed and the the stone rolled down to fit snugly, blocking the entrance. So while they're pondering the problem, they arrive and to their surprise, see that the stone has not only been rolled away, but from Matthew's account, we learn that it had somehow been taken out of its groove and laid flat on the ground in front of the tomb, making a seat for the angel who would have waited for the women and then gone inside where Mark says they saw him. And just a comment on the stone before we join the women inside the tomb. Mark tells us that the stone, lithos in the Greek, was very great, which makes sense because Joseph of Arimathea was a rich man who would have had a tomb that was of full height and a stone to match. The angel had removed the stone completely so that it lay flat on the ground in front of the tomb, providing him with a seat. The entrance to the tomb was thus totally open for all to see. And the removal of the stone was in itself a miracle, portending a greater miracle about to be revealed to the women as they enter the tomb, where they see a young man dressed in a white robe. Luke describes it as dazzling. And the women are dumbfounded. Note the symbolism here. In the place of death, there is a young, shining ambassador from heaven who says to them, don't be alarmed, because their first thought was that someone had stolen the body. Don't be alarmed. And he explains why they have no reason to fear. You are seeking Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified, implying, of course, that they are still expecting to find his body in the tomb where they saw Joseph place it on the Friday. He is risen. He's not here see where they laid him. Now we know from John's Gospel that the linen 
wrappings remained in place, but with no body in them. And of course, no human witnessed the actual resurrection. Perhaps the angels did. But to try and imagine what it might have been like, I recalled a couple of weeks ago on the telly um, The Last Jedi. And um, you'll remember that Luke Skywalker, after he sort of concentrated all his powers in fighting evil on the other side of the universe, he's sitting on a rock and he sort of, this has taken up all his power and life force and then that's it for him and he just sort of disappears, poof, and all the clothes crumple on the, on the uh, rock. Anyway, that's what I could imagine, uh, but we, it's a mystery, it's a mystery. No one actually saw or no human saw the actual resurrection. But back in the tomb, the headcloth is laid separately. So all this is visible evidence that something miraculous has happened. And the angel now confers on the women a wonderful task. Go and declare to the disciples that he is going before you to Galilee. This is not a request, it's an order, but it also contains the promise that they will see Jesus in Galilee as he had predicted. And notice that the angel commands them to tell the disciples and Peter, which only Mark records, in case Peter is so wretched over his betrayal of Jesus that he may not feel worthy of being included in their number. Advance notice, perhaps, that Jesus regards him still as a member of the team and that he intends to absolve him in person when they meet by the lake shore in Galilee. The angel's message is a promise. Jesus is going before you in Galilee. And it's significant that this first announcement of the resurrection is delivered to women. Proof in and of itself that the account is true because of the attitude of Judaism then and now to women. The Jewish morning service includes prayers that the men say after thanking God for not making them heathen or slaves. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who hast not made me a woman. So it's most unlikely that the early church would have chosen women to be the first to receive news of the resurrection if it wasn't true. In fact, the faithfulness of the women was in stark contrast to the men uh, who seem almost to have given up at that point. All four Gospels have their own records of the resurrection with differing details emphasized, but each has the ring of truth. So we can rest assured 
that the resurrection was a fact from the very beginning. Mark's account brings out the awe and the mystery of the event. Verse 8, the women tremble, overcome with amazement. The Greek ecstasis, from which we derive ecstasy. So they flee from the tomb, saying nothing to anyone at that stage, because they're afraid. An inauspicious beginning, you might think, for a revolutionary movement that would turn the world upside down. And yet, the women's fear must have been tinged with excitement and an inkling that what they had, until a few minutes previous, regarded as the disaster of Good Friday, would soon be eclipsed by the victory of Easter Sunday. A victory for the Son of God, who had declared himself the way, the truth, and the life in John 14. So the road ahead that they thought was blocked is now clear. The truth that they feared had been suppressed was now back and forever embodied in the person of their Lord himself. And the spiritual or Zoe life in the Greek, which they thought had been extinguished on the cross, was restored and stronger than ever. Never again to be threatened by evil men doing the bidding of their master, Satan. Because Satan, along with the biggest weapon in his armory, death itself, had both been defeated by the work of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. Like the women at the empty tomb whom the angel had ordered up to Galilee, we're invited to proceed along life's way, trusting in Jesus to live like he did, very much a revolutionary, battling against the current, not afraid to rub people up the wrong way if necessary, nor slavishly following the ebb and flow of popular opinion. In the world around us, where integrity and trust are in such short supply, we need more than ever to place our trust 100% in the one and only person who will never let us down, our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who in order to complete his own mission on earth, trusted implicitly in his Father, a God who, as Max Lucado reminds us, still sends angels and still moves stones. Amen.